0: Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, March 5th. The all kids, all the time edition. I'm Jimmy Lemieux, a writer, cultural critic, contributor to Slate's Karen and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is six for just a few more weeks. And we are based in Los Angeles, California.
0: Hey, I'm Dan Kois, I'm a writer at Slate and the author of the book, How to Be a Family. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 14, and Harper, who's 12 and 7 and we live in Arlington, Virginia.
2: I'm Emily Ferranto. I'm a writer, artist, and educator. I'm a mother to Oscar, who is 11. Ivan, who is nine, and we live in New Orleans, Louisiana.
1: Thank you for joining us, Emily. So today on the show, we have a question from a listener who works with kids, but doesn't have any of her own yet, and she's concerned that working with kids and then coming home to more kids may be too much to handle. We also have a question from a mom who's become a bit of a germaphobe after her four-month-old had to be hospitalized. What's the line between ensuring your child's safety and being overprotective? Plus, triumphs and fails and recommendations as always let's start with you Dan do you have a triumph or a fail for us this week
0: I have a fail this week a big old classic fail yeah absolutely no excuse for this fail I'm ashamed so Harper's birthday is in August She turned 12 this past August. August was a busy time. We had vacations. There was a lot of work stuff going on. A lot of her friends weren't around. And so we we just didn't get it together to do a birthday party. And she wanted a birthday party, but also when we started telling her, well, on this date, you know, these seven kids couldn't make it because they're all at camp or all on vacation. She was like, all right, I get it. We don't have to do a birthday party, but I still want a birthday party at some point. Mm -hmm. So we said – Okay, we have blown it in having a birthday party for you on your 12th birthday, but here's what we'll do. We'll have a 12 and a half birthday party. We'll do it six months after your August birthday in February. It'll be super fun. It'll be unique and funny and everyone will be available because everyone's around in February. And she said, fine, fine, we can do that. So then February comes around. Just a really busy month. Just a lot going on with work. And holidays, like, you know, Valentine's Day and President's Day are both in February, I think. Those are big days. Those are big days, yeah. You just got to do a lot of planning around them. And we were pretty busy and, you know, we just didn't get it together to do a birthday party for Harper. So then we scheduled one for March. We scheduled laser tag for March. And at this point, Harper is like – what the fuck is wrong with you guys? (laughs) Why can you not schedule a simple birthday party for one of your two children? And we're like, we're really sorry. It's just been, the laser tag place was booked and we didn't have the email addresses for a lot of your friends. So we sent out an invitation for this laser tag party. It'll be super fun. It says, join us for Harper's 12 and 7-12th birthday party. (laughs) And then Harper last night said, why did you do that? It's so embarrassing. And we were like, what? And she was like, <laughs> all my friends are like, what does it mean you're 12 and 7 birthday party? Why didn't you just say it was my birthday like a normal person? <laughs> because our, it's
1: not her birthday.
0: That's what I said, but she was unconvinced. So our fail is that we were unable to actually just do a birthday party on our kid's birthday and instead are doing it over half a year later in a way that's <laughs> embarrassing to her.
1: That is great. Thank you. That is a fail. One, it's also funny. And two, it's just that she's not yet that irreverent. Like, she's past the youthful irreverence of any day could be my birthday. It's magic. Whatever. I get a party? Sure. And, like, thinking of her friends judging her for having this super late birthday party. But really, it's a very early party, if you think about it.
0: (laughs) She does
1: have an actual birthday this calendar year.
0: Right. It's an early party for your 13th birthday. It's just that we didn't give you a 12th birthday party at all.
1: Facts matter, right? Isn't that what
2: we're trying to say? Like seven twelfths is not a half.
0: Yeah. As a journalist, it would be, in fact, a violation of my ethical principles to say (laughs) it's her birthday. It's not. (laughs) But see, she's
1: a girl, and I just feel like she's going to be held to a higher standard. Like, if Elizabeth Warren was trying to celebrate <laughs> her seven twelfth 12th birthday, as opposed to Joe Biden, everybody would probably just be, like, all up in arms about it. But, like, if Beto was like, hey, seven twelfth birthdays," birthday, you know, everybody like, that makes sense. <laughs> okay, sorry, personal tangent. Emily, do you have a triumph or a fail for us this week? I have a triumph. Oh, good.
2: For Christmas, I made my son's cookbooks— just a three-ring binder with like three recipes in it because cookbooks and recipes from the internet are really complicated and they have like all these details and stories and they're just kind of hard to navigate so I took recipes that they like and like put them in like a nice Futura font and made them look nice and took a picture when I had made them in the past just three pages each of recipes I liked so this past week Ivan my nine-year-old made this amazing chicken tagine with green olives and raisins. And I made couscous and then he made vanilla ice cream for dessert with his ice cream maker. So my triumph was in dealing with the fact that my kids want to cook and then they get books that have all these recipes in them and it takes so much of my time and there are so many fails and I like watered it down to one recipe at a time and then I can add a new one once they finish those. So it was a rare good idea that worked out well. Now I have homework to do because I have to make another one this week. But yeah, that was my triumph for the week.
0: That definitely seems like the kind of idea that would be great in theory and that in practice would be maddening. I'm very, very impressed with your child. He's nine and he made a chicken tagine.
2: I mean, it's not that complicated, (laughs) you know? Like, but to look it up on the internet, it's like, uh, Emily, I haven't cooked in six months.
0: You need like preserved lemons and shit on the internet.
2: Honestly, with the preserved lemon thing, we cheat. We just scan a lemon and throw it in there. We didn't do it true to the Moroccan, you know, original recipe.
1: But he's nine. Emily, what I want you to understand is that I have not cooked an entire meal from scratch since at least July. (laughs) I'm not kidding. This is my greatest failure as a parent. So your child at nine has already been a better parent to you. In 2020, then I've been to my own daughter. So this is a super triumph.
0: I bet your kid celebrated your birthday on time, too. <laughs> right. Unlike some parents, I know. <laughs>
1: Unlike some parents I know. This is the trap
2: of talking about a triumph because it's a only so interesting when something works out well and B, it's threaded with other failures. Like it's threaded with all of the failures of the cookbooks I bought that I thought were good or the times the recipes burned or time I gave away an ice cream maker and Ivan talked about it for like five years till I got him a new one for his birthday. So every triumph has all of these failures that have built it up and made it what it is today.
0: The good news is uh, my philosophy of triumphing and failing as a parent is that you got to be like a cornerback. You have a short memory, right? The fails Mm -hmm. just got to wash right off you. They never (laughs) happened. They never never existed. The triumphs you just fucking brag about for months.
1: We can all be the owl... Bundy of Polk High when it comes to parenting. (laughs) It does not matter what's happened between now and 1980. He must have played in the 70s. But what matters is that we did make that game-winning touchdown that one time. Okay, so I have, you know, I was going to come in with a fail because, you know, I've racked up some in the two weeks since the last time we spoke. But I think I'm going to instead present a triumph. First of all, my daughter, Naima, is starting gymnastics classes. She's really excited about it. It's at a rec center very close to her school. She's going to do it once a week, regardless of whichever parent is picking her up that day, she's going to have one of us there to sit and watch her in gymnastics. And the original plan was that dad and I were both going to go for her first class. But it happened to fall on the day of Elizabeth Warren's rally in East LA. And for those of you who've been listening for a while, you know, I've mentioned that I've been a surrogate for the campaign. And this is the last rally before Super Tuesday. I asked Naima, hey, we've been invited to come to this rally. You'd get to meet The candidate, you don't have to go. I know it's your first gymnastics class. I know you're very excited about that. But I also know that, you know, she's excited and enthusiastic about my support of the campaign. And this isn't the first time that I've supported one and included her in, you know, my work. And so what do you want to do? And she said she wanted to come with me. And so when I put it to her dad, he gave me a very, very thoughtful response about wanting the village to center her Talents and her work and her dreams too and to see us making sacrifices on her behalf And so he understood that she was enthusiastic about, you know going to the event and, and the campaign But he also, you know wanted to make sure that we were nurturing something that she was enthusiastic about that was entirely for her Which is gymnastics. So then I felt terrible (laughs) <laughs> um, But I gave it some thought and I, I talked to a couple friends and I decided to take Naima to the event I'm very glad that she did regardless of how everything shakes out and we are recording this on Super Tuesday So Jamila from the future kind of feels like she knows how it's going to turn out But either way, I feel like I made the right call in bringing her there And she was a little cranky and a little overwhelmed by all the people But she did have a very nice time meeting Elizabeth Warren She was very excited for me to send a picture of her and Elizabeth to her teacher this morning. And so I'm glad that I did that. And that's a memory that I want her to treasure for the rest of her life. And I, I want her to think about seeing a woman who is capable and competent and brilliant, who was running for office, and that she got to, you know, do a pinky promise with her that she would vote in the future. And that's cool. So I'm not going to beat myself up for her missing her birthday of gymnastics. I bought her a very cute unitard for when she does go.
0: As the dad of a 12 and 7 12th year old, I'm just going to tell you <laughs> You have got plenty of gymnastics classes to take her to in the future. You are never going to be like, man, I wish we'd made that one gymnastics class.
1: That's what I think. Yeah. That was that's exactly. exactly how I felt.
0: It's not the Olympic trials
1: it's not. There'll be plenty of other opportunities. And she also, maybe we need a copy of your cookbook, Emily, because I bought an Instapot recently. And as I said, I haven't cooked in six months for real. So it's not that it's been used, but it is out of the box. And we've looked at it and we've looked at recipes on the app. So like any day now I'm going to cook. And she's very excited about that. We had miso soup at a Chinese restaurant the other day and she said, oh, can you make this tomorrow? And I said, well, that's not exactly how cooking works. And that, no, I'm not going to just magically know how to make miso soup tomorrow, but we can do this.
0: So I look forward to next week's triumph when you make miso soup or fail when your Instapot explodes. One
1: or
2: the other. Yeah. Isn't it just like hot water and miso? I so, mm. so yeah, I think you take it,
1: take it <laughs> <of>
2: time. <laughs> I think just, you've got this. Just
0: dropping know. chef knowledge left and right. <laughs> and <I'm> like, wow. <laughs>
2: it's so much easier than I thought it was.
1: Maybe I mean, I don't really thought.
2: I don't really know. I've
1: never made that one yeah. page at a time. One page at a time. Is that not an allegory for parenting, but one page at a time? Yeah. All right. So before we get into our listener questions, let's handle some business. Slate's Parenting Newsletter is the best place to be notified about all of our parenting content. In fact, it's the only place to be notified about all of our parenting content, which includes mom and dad are fighting, care and feeding, and much more. And it's also an email in your inbox every week from the Dan Qua. So all you got to do is sign up at slate.com backslash parenting email and you can keep up with everything that we have going on and how we're failing our children. You can also check us out on Facebook where I violated a big rule last week, literally while the show was being recorded without me. I was feeling emo about, one, I was bummed out to not be able to do the show that weekend. Two, I was deeply missing my child because I was out of town. And so I was like, hey, Facebook group, where we have a rule where you can't share pictures of your kid. Do you want to see pictures of my kid? And I posted pictures of Naima in the Facebook group. I'm so sorry. I definitely expected Dan to kick me out. Actually, I was 12 and 7 12s because I was touching that pot on the stove and just wondering, like, what's going to happen here? To be fair, I had forgotten I'd forgotten that that was a rule. But, like, within minutes, I remembered. And then I commented, oh, wait, there's probably a reason there's no kid pictures in here. We're probably, like, not supposed to do this. And then I went back to the rules and confirmed that Gabe liked my comment. (laughs) And I knew that was his way of saying, bitch, take these pictures of your kids. <laughs> okay, I said to be in my worms. So that was in my head. Gabe would not have said that to me. So, yes, yeah, so I left the pictures up. They were cute. People were very nice about it. Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: And now it's our plus segment this week.
1: <laughs> yes, and now it'll be. Our <laughs> and now in our plus segment this week, we'll talk about which historical figures make for the best costumes. And here's a quick sneak peek of what you'll hear
0: if you are a Slate Plus member. Josephine Baker had a very specific, non-kid-friendly signature look. I was going
1: to say, I couldn't really do a banana skirt (laughs) in second grade and show up what Naima describes as nipple naked, which is when you're (laughs) topless. They can't see me nipple naked, Mommy, so no, that probably wouldn't have worked. To hear more segments like that and to get ad-free versions of your favorite Slate podcast, sign up for Slate Plus. It's our membership program. It's a great way to support us and only $35 for your first year. It helps to cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, again, you get extended ad free versions of this show and other great Slate programs and a ton of other great benefits. So if you would like to support us at Mom and Dad are Fighting, please go to slate.com backslash Mom and Dad Plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, on to the questions. The first one is being read by the one and only Shasha Leonard. Dear mom and dad,
3: I'm child free, but a speech therapist and lactation consultant. I was wondering if you could give insight into the experience of working with children and then having your own. While I truly love kids, the thought of working so intensely with them all day and then coming home to my own scares the shit out of me. The tediousness of parenting scares me. Knowing every terrifying, random way that children can become sick or injured scares me. The realities of having black children in this world scares me. I know that no one is ever really ready. But can anyone speak to my particular fears? My original solution was just to wait, but after trying to donate my eggs to a university last year, I found out that I have a low ovarian reserve for my age. I'll be 29 this year.
0: Would love to hear your thoughts. Hey, this is a really interesting question that actually came in through that Facebook group and spurred a lot of thoughtful responses. I'm not a person who has in my life worked with kids a lot. You know, when I had kids, I hadn't really had any experience with kids since I was a kid. So I wanted to maybe use this chance to ask some questions to my two co-hosts who both do have a lot of experience in this arena. So let's start with Emily. Emily, you're a teacher's assistant. You work with kids during the day and then you do indeed come home to your own kids at the end of the day. Have you found that to be oppressive or have you found it to be useful in the work that you do?
2: It has been more useful than oppressive. I don't think it's oppressive because children are people. If you work all day with regular people, you're not like, oh, now I have to go out with my regular people friends. I think it's a totally different animal. I mean, children are needy and their noses run and they say weird things. But your children are very different than children, I think. So for me, there's a divide between the professional and the personal. Sometimes I need a 10-minute buffer, and when I started working full-time, I thought, when I do this, I'm going to have to institute, like, a 10-minute window when I get home. And sometimes I use it. Like, sometimes I'll be like, I'm taking a 10, and I'll go to my room, and I'll look at garbage on my phone, or I'll sleep, or something like that. And then I'm like, now I'm personal person. But being a parent has helped my work with children. Working with children has helped my parenting.
0: How about you, Jamila? You have been a teacher, you've worked in camps, you had a career of working with kids for a long time before you became a writer. Did that give you any pause uh, when you discovered that you were going to be a parent and when you started thinking about what that might mean, that you had all this experience in the childcare world and that you might have a life where you're sort of toggling back and forth between the two?
1: So I realized during my uh, brief stint as a teacher that I – like children more than I enjoy working with children professionally. My degree is in acting. So me becoming a teacher really had a lot to do with assuring my parents that I wasn't going to be 40 and unable to take myself to the doctor because I was between gigs.
0: Classic actor's day job.
1: Classic actor's day job, right? And so obviously my life ended up taking some twists and turns and I didn't pursue either of those things super long. But I will say that me thinking that I could do it had a lot to do with just always loving children and always having a strong maternal instinct and and wanting to be a big sibling and, and not having been one and always being the big kid who looked after little kids. And so I'll say now that actually being a parent, I think that one, so much of what I got from my time in education and, you know, in working in after school programs and day camps has been helpful. And children were not a new beast to me in the way that they've been to so many parents that I know, especially those of us who were either the youngest sibling or did not have siblings at all. And two, I'm overwhelmed by children in groups of more than two, (laughs) maybe three in ways that I wasn't when I was younger. And part of that could just be being a bit out of practice and also having a different relationship to these kids because I don't have a professional responsibility to them, but I have this deep connection to them when I'm around because I'm a mother and because typically if I'm around kids, they have some connection to my child. So to the letter writer, I would say, and there's a lot to this letter, the fear of having Black children, which I can totally empathize and understand. Being a lactation consultant, which means you're doing birth-related work, I would imagine that As somebody who's training to be a doula, you're keenly aware of some of the challenges surrounding women in this country and black women in particular around maternal health. And so knowing that you have a low ovarian reserve for your age and and being almost 30, that's a lot of potentially frightening information for somebody who's still ambivalent about becoming a parent to have to process all at once. And I would say, yes, parenting can be tedious, but it is also, much like teaching or working as a speech therapist, deeply rewarding. You have to want it. And I think that if it's the fear of being overwhelmed by the number of children in your life, then perhaps the decision is which one speaks more deeply to my spirit, a desire to be a parent or a desire to continue on as a speech therapist, right? Because even being a lactation consultant would mean having a lot of exposure and experience to babies. But once your own child is a baby, then you're having two very different groups of children in your life, right? I would just say you have a lot of soul searching to do. You know, I mean, most teachers are women and a good percentage of them, if not the majority of them, are mothers or become mothers at some point during their teaching careers and You know, I've known a lot of children of teachers and I've known a lot of teachers with children and they all seem to have a connection to education that is really valuable. I think that the insight that you would have as somebody who does birth work and who works with children that have IEPs and specific sets of needs around education could be incredibly helpful to any child and in particular to a black child who's uniquely vulnerable in certain ways when it comes to health and education. So being a parent is a crazy journey, right? But like it's one that most of us have some level of enthusiasm and and passion for. But again, it's something that you have to deeply want.
0: The sort of panoply of fears that this letter writer is putting out there, as you say, Jamila, there's a real range of them. And one thing that really struck me when we had kids and when I talked to other people about the difference between the way you think about having kids Before you have them and what it's actually like to have them once they're in your life. In my experience, the more specific your fear is before you have kids, the less likely it is to be the thing that actually is the problem causer or the thing that worries or upsets you or obsesses you once you actually have the kids. Which is to say everyone Worries about the terrifying or horrible things that can happen to their children, the way they can get sick or injured, that will never stop obsessing any parent. But that also doesn't really stop anyone from loving their children or being perfectly happy in parenthood. That's part of the cocktail that is parenthood. But something as specific as. You know, I work all day with kids and I'm worried that when I get home, I won't want to be with my kids because I'll be sick of kids. Like That's so particular a concern. I would bet money that when and if you do actually have children, if you are still working with kids, that's like going to be the last thing that you worry about. That's going to be the last thing on your mind. Your concerns about your children will have so much more to do with who they are and your relationship with them than with this concern that you're having right now. This should not be the thing that drives your decision-making.
2: So I work with French teachers and – The French have a very different approach to working, even with really small children. I'm generalizing here, and I may be getting into deep water, but from all of the French colleagues I've had, loving children or even liking children is not a requirement of working with small children. It's a profession, and you approach it almost like a scientist, and you study brain development, and you build frameworks in which children can thrive and grow and have their very first professional relationships. So... What maybe would happen is you see that the feelings you have for the children you work with are just very, it's a whole different animal than the feelings and approach you have to being at home. Before I had kids, and even now I will say I don't particularly like children. I don't dislike them. I just, they're just people. And some I like, and some I don't like, and some I like a lot. And at school, when I'm working, I just fair is kind of what I go for. Fair, warm, compassionate, organized. And then at home is where, you know, the emotions of engaging with my children, happen. And they're two really different things in my world. The The tedium, everything is tedious if you do it every day. So, like, if you go to a rave every day, it's going to get tedious, you know? So there's parts of parenting are tedious, but parts of everything are tedious when they're routine. So there are other parts that
1: are amazing and weird. I think that's a really interesting and probably the most common perspective on teaching, right, is that it's work, and so... Most folks that do that work approach it as they would any other work, that it doesn't always come from a deep, abiding love for children or education more so than here's my skill set, here's an opportunity, here's the thing I think would be good work to do for any number of reasons that aren't necessarily driven by love. But for me, I've always thought of teaching as something that you should love and that because I did not love it is why I ultimately felt like I could not remain in that space because kids really need somebody who cares in their heart. In a way, then that, that's not to say that you can't, you know, if you take your job seriously, you're going to want to do it well. And so doing it well as a speech therapist means that the children who come into your office who have these particular challenges or that, you know, kids that you go work with in their classrooms, that you address those challenges and you do it with care, compassion and knowing how to do the work. But you're right. It does not always have to be a matter of passion. And you can have the passion at home for the kids and, and not necessarily have it. At work in the same way I am going to have
0: passion for the job and the importance of the job and the things about the job that you like or enjoy without necessarily feeling like the job revolves entirely around your close emotional connection to every single one of those children. I think that's what seems like it might be exhausting And might be worrisome to a letter writer like this, that you build all these relationships at school and then you add on to that these even more intense relationships at home. And you feel like you never have sort of like an emotional moment off. I mean, not even to speak about you never have a moment where someone's not shouting at you. And you may not be able to solve that latter one, but I do think that thinking of the job of teaching as – Being passionate about the work that you do and about what you teach these children and the way you care for them, but not necessarily feeling like the relationship with those children has to even really resemble in any way your relationship with your kids. And I think that's an important distinction that you've made, Emily.
1: I think that it's a distinction that for a lot of Black folks, Black women in particular, find it, and perhaps Black men as well, which could be a barrier to entry for the field for a number of Black men, is that we do have this feeling, this sense of responsibility to our kids and to children in general in a way that I don't think is common of everyone. And so being a Black woman who's working particularly with kids who have challenges and and who's working with mothers who have challenges with something, you know, like breastfeeding, I can imagine how emotionally connected she is to the kids and the families that she's dealing with. And I understand why and I understand how difficult it may be to separate yourself. And sometimes those boundaries are necessary. And so it's not about saying I'm letting go of this concept of I am of this village and here's my responsibility to the village. And again, it's not just the connection that we have with Black children. It's when we are in classrooms, we feel that these are our babies and we have to love them and protect them from the world around us and prepare them for that world as best as we can. And and we have to protect those mothers and love them and make sure that their babies can eat and, and, and we care. It's not science. It's spirit work. It's culture work in so many ways. And that I would suggest to you, Facebook friend, That you speak to perhaps some black female uh, teachers who are a bit older, maybe in their 40s and 50s or 60s who are parents, maybe some other lactation consultants or birth workers who have children about how they've managed to or if they've managed to balance in a healthy way, the love and care that they have for the families and kids that they deal with professionally and their own children. That's a good idea. So thank you so much for sharing that and for engaging. I love when we get questions from folks who are not yet parents, regardless of the decision you make long term, that you're engaging with parenting comment and listening to what parents and and people who are raising children are talking about, I think, says a lot. Do you notice that, Dan? Like, I feel really grateful when we get engagement both here and in care and feeding from non-parents. So thank you all. Shout out to all the non-parents who listen and read and engage with us online.
0: We have always been amazed at the incredible percentage of our listeners who are child-free. It's way more than you would think they were. It's something north of
1: 30%. Yeah, that's really something. So thank you. And, and on behalf of those of us who are parents, you know, aside from just those of us who are hosted this show, I think that being heard and thought about and considered and our children being heard and thought about and considered by people who are around us but aren't doing the same role in their lives is really important. So thank you for reaching out, listener. And if you have a question for us, parent or not, please feel free to send us an email at momanddadslate.com, or you can do what this listener did and post your question in Slate's Parenting Facebook group. All right. On to our next question, which is, again, being read by Shasha Leonard. Dear Mom and Dad are fighting.
3: I am a new mom to a six-month-old. When our son was four months old, right before Christmas, he got sick with a respiratory infection and ended up in the hospital for four nights one in the pediatric ICU. It was, of course, a very difficult and scary experience, especially since it was the first time he had ever been sick. Prior to him getting sick, we were comfortable taking him out with us almost everywhere we went. After him getting sick, it's been really difficult for me and my husband to recalibrate what we are comfortable with and to get on the same page with this. And there is an added factor that my mother-in-law has now become more outspoken that we should be extremely cautious— I could write a whole letter on that alone. I am struggling with the type of parent I want to be. I have always wanted to give my future kids room to explore and not be too protective so they can learn, even if that means a few scraped knees. My husband is a much more careful person by nature. Before having kids, I have always known that the area we would disagree most would be how protective to be of our kids. Though he has always assured me he shared my values of not being overly protective. Before the hospital, it felt like we were generally on the same page. Now, while we have both shifted on the spectrum to be more cautious, he's gone farther in that direction than me. For example, he prefers that we don't take our baby to the grocery store or to medium-sized get-togethers with friends, at least during cold and flu season, because you never know who might be sick. But this has been really hard on me. Honestly, I just want my son with me. I want my friends to get to see him, and I want to enjoy time together as a full family. It means that on days where I don't work and I watch the baby, I can't knock out errands like getting groceries, which is frustrating and logistically challenging. And other times we are essentially paying a nanny so I can get groceries, which seems unnecessary. How do we decide what is the right amount of precaution to take versus needing to live our life and wanting our son to experience the world? How do I navigate differences on this between my husband and myself? Thanks, mom who doesn't want to be a germaphobe.
0: Mom who doesn't want to be a germaphobe. You are right to not want to be a germaphobe. The life you are describing right now, the life that your husband is trying to get you to live with your six-month-old, sounds no fun at all. Restricting your home life that way isn't your idea of a happy family life. It makes things harder for you emotionally. It makes things harder for you practically makes things harder for you financially if you're hiring nannies just so you can go to the grocery store and spend money it needs to change because you will be happier and your child will be happier too i mean that's the very simple answer i think but i'm very curious what my co-hosts think emily what do you think
2: it's right in the sign off mom who doesn't want to be a germaphobe then don't be because a fear can be a healthy trigger like oh you should pay attention to this you should pay attention to germs okay so then ration kicks in and you think okay so What do I do to protect my child from germs and be reasonable? But the first part of the question said, I'm struggling with my identity and the type of parent I want to be. Well, what type of parent do you want to hang out with? You don't want to hang out with a parent who bubble wraps their child and, you know, is dousing them in hand sanitizer. I think you know what kind of parent you want to be because you stated that. I understand that the experience of going to the hospital with a four-month-old must have been terrifying. I want to acknowledge that. But there's life. There's the reason we're here. There's interaction. There's, I mean, I took my, I hope I don't get blowback for this, but, you know, I took my baby and a baby Bjorn to Mardi Gras parades. You know, I mean, it's disgusting. And I have two sturdy, healthy kids with healthy, I think, biology. So I think I think you have to figure out how to thread the needle and not give in to fear for fear's sake. You know, do your research, talk to your medical people. I agree with you also, this seems to be more of a, like a marital discussion. You want your son with you, and your son probably wants to be with you. And you share biology that will help build immunity. Yeah, live your life. I mean, there's there's a lot of great stuff to engage with. Wait till this child is playing with other kids, kids are disgusting.
0: Absolutely disgusting.
2: I think, I mean, this is my own theory. I should look it up sometime, but a levy, the thing that they chew on, that they drop, that they share, and I think that's supposed to be their bacteria bundle. If your child is always (laughs) in some kind of sanitized bubble, I have to believe that it's not great for their immune system.
0: Yes, the research backs up that restricting your child's bacterial exposure to only what's inside your house is not that healthy. It's not as healthy as them being out in the world in varied environments to build the human microbiome and, and improve their immune system. But so Jamila, I mean first of all, do you agree that it's worth trying to get over this germophobia? And if so, how do you have that conversation with a husband who seems like petrified?
1: I think it is to some extent, as well as the mother-in-law. She said that could be a letter all its own. Oh, yeah, so man. I sounds like mother-in-law maybe much like my own mother. And I know that I have shades of my mom's Extreme risk aversion within me, too. But one thing that I never really demurred from was taking my child places where she didn't necessarily belong as a baby, such as to work with me every day for two months when she was an infant. I also think it's important that in trying to find a middle ground of some sort that you are sensitive to a legitimate sense of anxiety that your husband and his mother, and in particular your husband, right? Because this is more about him than his mom, but we know who's in his ear saying these things. And, you know, God forbid, hopefully not, but you you kind of implied this, that maybe she's even made it clear that she knows better than you do about, (laughs) about this thing, right? You know, I have a friend who she and her husband lost a baby just before he turned a year old due to one of those illnesses that just sort of happens. And that, you know, another one of those stories were having great insurance and access to great doctors and doing the right things and going to the hospital just didn't fix it. Perhaps your husband heard one of those stories. And I know how hearing a story like that while having an infant can just rock you to your core and just scare you and shake you up. And and we're in the middle of a not just flu season, but we're dealing with a a deadly new confusing flu that came from somewhere else. There's a lot of misinformation being spread. And and this is how paranoia grows. And uh, I think it's important that you... Try to help him relearn how to enjoy life as a family where you all are able to take your child to the grocery store and to a party here and there without discounting the value that fear can hold for parents and that there is an importance to being precautious so saying like yeah we're going to this get together with folks that we know and we feel like this is a safe and controlled environment like yes there'll be people yes somebody will have a cold it happens but we're also going to wash our hands constantly and we're going to make sure that everyone who touches the baby washes their hands right like As someone who took my kid a whole lot of places earlier in her life, I was really good about that. You know, as she got a little bit older, I I wasn't quite as good as making sure that somebody at least pulled out hand sanitizer. And what I didn't know really until this year was that hand sanitizer isn't really sufficient. You know, when I'm going to hand you my baby, you need to go wash your hands. Right. And so if you say, what are the things that we can do to protect our child while we're still able to function normally in the world? And there may be times where it's like, look, it's flu season. There's a lot going on. It's okay that this weekend we did our groceries on Amazon, you know, fresh or whatever. I don't know where groceries come from anymore because I stopped cooking. But a little bit of fear is good. You all can good cop, bad cop this, but you just have to find a middle ground. I don't think it's a matter of just being like, okay, next year we're going to Mardi Gras, and we're going to have the baby out there, because that's not who he is, and that's fine, you know. Well, it but doesn't sound always... like
0: that's who she is either, right? She said herself, yeah. she is feeling a little more nervous in the wake of this hospitalization, but I do think that right now, it's not that they're living with fear, or that fear is functioning in any appropriate way in their family. He is being ruled by fear to the extent that it's making her life as a parent like miserable. It is making her not the kind of family she wants their family to be. And I do think when you have that kind of problem, address it like pretty clearly and and in a way sure that is respectful of his fear but that also lets him know that that fear cannot be the only determining factor in how she as a mother lives her life and how they as a family live their life. And I mean one way to ease into that conversation is to Talk science if he's a guy who responds to science, right? There is a ton of research you can point to about that. Another way is to talk to your doctor, to take that kid to the pediatrician and make sure your husband is there for that appointment where you talk about, well, as a result of this – Illness that he had at four months. Do you feel nervous about going out into the world? Should we know anything about his immune system? What do you recommend as a doctor? This is a great case where what a doctor is going to tell your husband might be more useful than what you have to say to your husband. Absolutely. But I also think that you need to make an emotional appeal that I am not happy with living our life Mm -hmm. this way. And if I'm not happy, something needs to change. I think that that needs to be part of this appeal.
1: Absolutely.
2: Fear is fine as a spark, but then it has to direct somewhere. If it just circles and circles, it becomes toxic. So I think it's like when my son is stressing out about a test, little stress is good because that's why you sit down and study, but it becomes extra. So you have the work and then you have the results and then the stress becomes the removable element. And fear in this case, I think is the, okay, so you're afraid, like, Both of you are, to varying degrees, concerned or afraid. So I would, like you said, go to the doctor, go to the science, and I would chart it.
0: Fear as a directive is a really good way to think about it, right? You want your fear to lead you to a sustainable family practice. Never letting your kid leave the house is clearly not sustainable long term, right? That you can't live that way forever. So the fear should lead you to a set of practices that help you make your family both safe enough for both of you, but also social enough for you. And honestly, eventually him, like he's going to get over this at some point and want to find ways to get that kid out of the house as well. So thinking of fear as a directive that leads you to the practices that help your family be happy is a much better way of thinking of it that as fear stopping you from doing things.
1: Absolutely. We are all sending Good wishes to you for healing the situation in your household as well as for the continued health of your baby. And please keep us posted on what happens next. If you are interested in having us consider one of your parenting quandaries, please send us an email at momanddad@slate.com. Before we get out of here, we're going to do some recommendations. Emily, what do you have for us this week? Okay, so I have
2: a product called Cowboy Magic. I'm not a medical person, and this is not a human product, but everything I could read online said it was fu- <laughs> it was fine to use on humans. So we went to a ranch in Texas <laughs> in uh, what October. What the fuck are you <laughs> recommending? <laughs> okay, <Probably. laughs> so in October, we went to this horse ranch, and the wonderful woman who was hosting us suggested for my son's long- fine but thick hair that tended to, you know, sort of coil and then dread to comb it out with cowboy magic because he does not like to have his hair combed, but he's really attached to his long hair.
0: Wait, so it's a horse hair detangler.
2: So it's a concentrate. I have the bottle right here so I could read from it. Cowboy magic, concentrated detangler and shine, detangles hair instantly i didn't read anything toxic about it online but you know <laughs> to each his own research but um i tried it this week and it was amazing i mean he had these these knots but little cowboy magic and a, and a comb he looked like one of the nelson twins remember the nelsons oh, I, oh, do I? you ever, know with that yeah, long yeah. straight blown out yeah. Then it, he washed it and it looked normal again, but it was magic. So it gave him, magic. they gave him a glossy Horse-hair mane detangler. of
0: the sort that you have always wished <laughs>
2: it, it was the workload was just decreased. The crying was eliminated. And the, the bottle says it smells good, too. It does not smell bad. Yeah. horse hair detangler. Uh, Cowboy
0: Magic Magic on Amazon advertises their product as great for pets and humans.
1: (laughs) Emily, I was going to say I'm so glad to be the least dangerous person on the show for once, but (laughs) I, I thought about mane and tail shampoo, which was originally created for horses, and someone did what you did and had the courage to put it on a human's hair and discovered that it worked quite well. There's a formula that's marketed toward humans, and they market it towards pets still. So... You you may be onto something.
0: Love it. Fantastic recommendation. I absolutely love it.
1: I'm honestly desperate, so I'm going to probably try it. Not even going to laugh.
0: I'm recommending this week uh, a totally adorable little game for families called Love Letter. It is a very cute game that Alia actually gave me for Valentine's Day. It was very sweet. It's just a little card game that you can play with up to four people, two to four people, and it moves very fast. It's funny and charming. It takes like. 15 minutes to play one game of it. The idea of it, well, I mean, the idea is not that important, but you're trying to get a love letter to the princess. But you might only be able to get the letter to someone near the princess, a countess or a prince or someone else. And the person who can get their love letter closest to the princess wins the round. But basically, it's just like a very simple compare and discard card game that is really easy to pick up and fun for kids and adults. Like we've played it a bunch of times in the family. Even Lyra, who almost always says no to games, has like weirdly gotten attached to this one. So it's become a real hit in our house. It's called Love Letter. It's cheap and fun. I recommend it. Jamila, what about you? What do you recommend?
1: Well, first, Dan, I just want to say, is this game going to terrify and traumatize my child? Because it is not. Nothing time, in this game
0: explodes in any game. way. No piece from this game will hit her in the face or enter her ears or nasal cavity. So she should be all right.
1: Boom Blastics. She kept saying, they just keep Boom Blasting. They just keep Boom Blasting. Boom Blastics is available at the Goodwill on La <laughs> <laughs> I left it there last week, so if somebody hasn't scooped it up, you can go get it. I'm sure they're only selling it for a couple of bucks. It's a very Love Letter game. does
0: not boom blast in any way. Okay.
1: So I am recommending a book that's not actually out yet, but I'm super excited to have pre-ordered it, even though my child has now aged out. And I'm at that point, I guess both of you all can relate to this when you look up and your kid can read. And like some of those beautifully illustrated children's books that they required you to read to them or that they enjoyed reading to you aren't necessarily appropriate anymore. We've got chapter books and books that don't have pictures, but I miss these beautiful pictures. Andrea Pippin, who wrote one of my absolute favorite books for Naima, I Love My Hair, has a new book coming out called Who Will You Be? It helps Kids to understand the idea of what people in the community do and where they'll fit in the world. And so the meditation there is My child, my little one, who will you be when you're grown? There's loving kindness in your eyes like your daddy's and boldness in your hearts like your grandma's. Will you be like them? I think it's super sweet. And it's this child looking at her baby and wondering, Will you be like grandpa? Will you be like grandma? Will you be like daddy? It's super beautiful. It's called Who Will You Be by Andrea Pippins. It comes out April 7th. It's available for pre order now. And it's for kids between the ages of three and six. So by the time this comes out, Naima will be 7.001 <laughs> years old and thusly too old for it. But I'm thinking about getting it for her anyway. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Emily, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Once more, if you have a question that you'd like to hear on air, please send us an email at com. Join us on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting mom and dad are fighting is produced by rosemary belson for dan kwa and emily Bronto. i'm jimmy Lemieux.